this letter has, has been preserved for us over the centuries and addressed a lot of things um, that are just as relevant to what it means to follow Jesus today as they were back when Paul wrote them. So that's why we've been chewing on it. Uh, by way of this quick review, the church in Colossae, uh, who this letter is written to, is young and therefore vulnerable. They're pretty fresh, they're pretty new, uh, and therefore vulnerable to being influenced by the culture around them. Right? Sounds a little bit like us. Yes? Yes. Because fresh, because they're new, and, and there's, there are cultural pressures that surround us. Uh, in particular, they're being tempted to a, by a certain brand of, of heresy. And, and the word heresy actually means kind of a, a twisted truth. So uh, something that is true and torqued. And so it, becomes, it stops being true and it still smacks of some kind of truth. That's heresy. And the, the Colossian heresy in particular uh, was basically something like a salad bar approach to truth. Right? Uh, where sort of all spiritual paths, all religions are cool, they all have that equal value, and so what you get to do is you get to sort of pick and choose your favorite parts of what spirituality is like, leave out the sort of uncomfortable parts, and you get to build your own sort of personal spirituality, and whatever school views cool for you. Sounds like, good again. Western. Um, and Paul is quick to confront that, and says, no, 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 that is a risky place to be. When it comes to spirituality. Because the only truth, Paul claims, is to be found in Jesus. There is a central figure who, who encompasses all truth. And anything other than Jesus is only true insofar as it agrees with what Jesus said. So there are certainly many various true things about all different spiritual walks and paths. But Jesus becomes the definition for what is and is not true. What is and is, is not worth building your life on. And so he's helping them to grow, helping them to mature, to stabilize against the cultural pressures they're facing. So the question that this book uh, raises for us is, what does it look like to mature in Christ? What does it look like to solidify as a community of people who have attached ourselves to Jesus? Um, and it's great for us to study because whether or not you call yourself a Christian, this is a good test of, this is a good picture of, okay, this is what it means. This is what these Christian folk believe. This is the, the claims they built their lives on. And for those of us who have attached ourselves to Jesus, it's good to say, okay, this is what it looks like to mature, to get stable, to get solid in what I've chosen to believe in, what I've chosen to sink my teeth into and build my life around. So, that's what we've been doing. Um, let's see. And so, so far we've seen that a mature community of Christ followers is a community that prays, right? That was back in the, the first week. Um, and it's also one that has a, a focused hyper-centralized emphasis on Jesus himself and what he's done for us. Paul opens his letter with this epic anthem about what, who Jesus is and what he's done for us and draws the Colossian attention. In a world of competing worldviews, he says, focus on Jesus. Zero in on Christ. So that brings us to our text tonight, which starts at the end of chapter 1 and takes us to the beginning of chapter 2, um, verses 24 in chapter 1 through about verse 5 in, in, in chapter 2. And what's important tonight is that after this epic anthem that Paul writes, uh, that he just finished in this letter, after he writes about who Jesus is and what he's done on our behalf, the question that I hope you were all asking after next week was, what can possibly come next? What is Paul going to say? What comes after this? What happens in someone's life when, when they are so struck with what Paul is struck with? What happens when, when you are so captured 
by the supremacy of Jesus and the incredible act of his death in your place, in my place. What happens to somebody like that? That's what our text is about tonight. And so, to, to unpack a little bit of that, I want to tell you some stories. Okay? I like to tell stories, and we'll intermix them with this sort of next portion in, the, in Paul's letter to Colossians. The, the, very, the first story that I want to tell you is Paul's story. That's the first thing we're going to unpack. He's the author of this letter. He, he, he sort of engineered the writing of this and sent it to this, this community. And his story begins before people ever called him Paul. Because that's his Greek name. When he was a young man, he went by Saul, his Jewish name. Saul was born and raised in a port city on the Mediterranean Sea called Tarsus. There's a map there. The little red box is Tarsus, so you can see it. Um, that's his hometown. He was a Jew, and he was, the, he was at the very top of his Jewish class. So much so that he even applied to be a disciple of one of the most popular rabbis in Jerusalem, which is kind of Jewish headquarters. He would have been among hundreds of applicants, and he was one of the few accepted. Um, this would have been something like, there's a picture of him, yes, off his Facebook. <laughs> um, this would have been something like getting accepted to Harvard, then being personally mentored by the president of the school. This is the kind of upper crust, educational, intellectual savvy guy that Paul is in the ancient world. His specialty was in Jewish law. He was so enthralled by his understanding of the Hebrew God that he devoted his life to preserving the law as God's special communication with Israel and their unique access to him among all the other nations in the world. So, you can just imagine what it would have been like, what his response would have been when he heard about a small Jewish sect who claimed that an ordinary Jew named Jesus of Nazareth was not just the true Messiah, not just the sent one from God, or in Christ, in Greek, the word is Christ, but that he claimed to be, in both word and action, the image of the invisible God. For a faithful Jew to hear that a human being was making this claim would have been blasphemy. To a Jewish Pharisee like Saul, these are the claims that actually get Jesus executed in the first place. He is killed, he is put, put into the Roman hands for execution because of blasphemy. Accused of blasphemy by the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem. So, Saul, the devoted uh, keeper of God's law, for the sake of God's glory, devotes himself to snuffing out this quickly spread, spreading and blasphemous Jewish sect. Gives his life to it as best he could. He has permission from the religious authorities in Jerusalem that would allow him to hunt down and imprison these Jesus followers. He even oversaw the execution of one of his new community's leaders, a young man named Stephen. Stephen had preached the message of Jesus and started a riot in a synagogue. And the Jews there dragged Stephen outside the city and under Saul's supervision and approval surrounded him and threw heavy stones at his body until he was killed. That's what stoning was in the first century. The crowd, mob, execution. And we'll pick up Saul's story in Acts 9, verse 1. Meanwhile, 
Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, that's what uh, Christians were called back then, those who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Saul makes a good move here. Who are you, Lord? (laughs) I am Jesus, who you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Well, as you can imagine, this changes everything. Imagine how you would feel if your actions, which were done in devotion to God, ended up being in opposition to that very same God. For Saul to be confronted with the resurrected Jesus Christ, this true Son of God, whose followers he had been hunting down. Who can just imagine you? To say the least, Saul switched teams. It took a little while, and no surprise, but it took a little while for the early Christians to believe his story. But they were convinced once they saw the proof of his conversion in his lifestyle. Now the question is, how did they know that Saul had really met Jesus? How did they know that he wasn't some kind of double agent trying to infiltrate their community, to exploit his, his inside information and rally up the whole of the leadership and imprison them? How did they know this? This is the first thing, as you read on the story, this is the first thing that Saul does in response to hearing and accepting the message about Jesus. Verse 19 in that same chapter. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. That's the city he was on his way to when he meets Jesus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc? In Jerusalem, among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. Saul's response when he heard the message of Jesus, when he heard about the supremacy of Christ, when he heard about the God of the universe who was killed instead of him, his response was, we got to tell people about this. People need to hear this. This is incredible. And so the Lord Jesus, Saul's new master, gives Saul a new assignment. In many ways, God, God said to him, Saul, so far, this message about Jesus has, has been Jewish. Jesus was a Jew. All his original disciples were Jews. I want this to be a worldwide movement. I want this to get to Sri Lanka, eventually. I want this to get to every corner of the world. And I want you to be the one who translates the first gap. Everyone in the ancient world in the Jewish mindset was either a Jew or a non-Jew. A Jew or a Gentile. Or a Greek. Greek was kind of the overall, um, uh, so the generalized version of Gentile. Just non-Jewish. And Paul was the perfect guy for the job. He grew up in Gentile town. Tarsus is not a Jewish city. It's like Gentile town. 
And so when he speaks the language, the Jewish expert with intense Gentile experience, he's the man for the job. God says, I want to send you to the Gentiles with this message. So cool. This becomes Saul's new mission in his life. He begins going by the Gentile version of his name, which is Paul. And being a missionary and church planter among the Gentiles by the command of God becomes the central focus of his life. Everything Paul does from that point on is centered around what God has called him to do. It's centered around people got to hear this. Let me read you some of the things Paul went through to follow through on God's call on his life in response to what Jesus had done for him. In Acts 14, verses 19, it says this. In the city of Lystra, some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. I don't know how that what that looks like. But you can imagine when a crowd finishes stoning and chucks him outside the city in what bad shape he must have been. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and ran far, far away. He got up and went back into the city. <laughs> Chapter 16, verse 22. In Thyatira, the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. In Acts 23, a riot breaks out in Paul's court case. He's in the courtroom, and a riot breaks out because of the things he says. And verse 10 says, The dispute became so violent that the Roman commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. Paul was shipwrecked on his way to his trial in Rome, bitten by a poisonous snake among the islands on that same journey. And then when he arrives in Rome, he is sentenced to imprisonment. And at the time of writing this letter to the Colossians, he is under house arrest, chained to a Roman soldier at all times. Why? For what? Why was Paul willing to go through all this and then some, as you read the book of Acts? Because he had encountered the resurrected Jesus. He had encountered the very Jesus from last week's portion of the letter, the supreme being in all the universe. And he had realized what Jesus had done for him, even though he had been Jesus' enemy. When Paul writes, we were once his enemies, he is not fooling around. He is being quite literal when he talks about himself, being one of God's enemies, one of Christ's enemies. Now, since we know all that, Let's carry that backstory into the next portion of his letter to the Colossians, okay? He writes this, starting in verse, halfway through verse 23. This is the gospel that you heard, and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you. We just read about what was suffered for them. I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my own flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions, for the sake of his body, which is the church. Now, Paul doesn't mean that uh, Jesus' work on the cross is somehow incomplete. That wouldn't make any sense given the previous section, correct? Makes no sense if that's what he means. What he means here instead is that there's still work to do to get the word out. There's still work to do to encourage those 
who have heard and accepted this word. Verse 25, I have become the church's servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in all its fullness. Not the shaved down version, not the watered down version, in all its fullness. And what is the word of God in its fullness? Verse 26, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints. In other words, those who believe. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery. This mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul is still singing from last week. He is, I'm sure he's dancing around in the house of rest and the poor Roman soldiers doing like, you know, trickle in the room. But think about that. Christ with us. Paul is writing to a community. This is a fantastic mystery. Christ is here tonight. Jesus has joined us. Jesus is leading our movement on this campus. He is alive and well and pulling the strings on making his kingdom come. Fantastic. I have to ask myself when I read this, whenever I, whenever I come across these, these passages, I ask myself, Lord, do I sound like Paul? Do I sing the way he does? Am I so captured by what Jesus has done for me that I just bounce off the walls and, and, and talk about it? And not in a personality way. We have all different personalities, all different ways of, of, of experiencing this information. But am I captured by this message in a way that my life is reoriented around? Am I willing to be uncomfortable, to be unpopular, even to suffer for the sake of this message and for the sake of those who accept it? Because being a servant of Jesus Christ means orienting your entire life around getting this amazing message out and caring for those who respond by believing. Being a servant of Jesus means orienting your entire life around getting this amazing message out and then caring for the people who respond by believing. Paul says that the appropriate effect of accepting Jesus and what Jesus has done for us, back to verse 28, we proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. Paul does not have small goals. I hope everybody is presented perfect in Christ. And the words he uses, these are great. These two words, admonishing and teaching. Paul uses his words very particularly. He could use just one. I want to teach them. No, no, he said admonish and teach. He could use admonish. Why would he use two? You always have to ask yourself that. Why does Paul use the words he uses? Now, if you knew Greek, which I do not, but smarter people than I do, I think that... <laughs> we would know learn this that admonishing is a warning word. Admonishing has to do with giving a warning, and it's, it has to do with correcting people's thinking because of the danger they're in. In other words, to admonish someone is to say the way you currently think or the way you understand the world is a risky way to understand. And so I want to help you reorient your thinking. I want to warn you to think differently. That's what the word admonish has to, uh, means. The word teaching is a term used for, for education. And so in these two words, in this one verse, 
Paul expresses his response to this incredible gospel. We proclaim him, we help more people to, to, to change their minds about what's true about reality, and then we teach those who come and want to learn about more who he is. Verse 29, to this end, to this end I labor, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. Now this is important. I really appreciated Jonathan's prayer for the missionaries in these different countries. He was praying for Jordan, but it counts for Shemaka too. Whose energy, whose steam are we trying to run this on? Whose juice are we trying to obey by? If it's just ours, we're going to fry out. We cannot try to do this on our own team. We will crash. We have got to be energized and strengthened by Christ. More on that at the end. Back to the text. Now we're studying chapter 2. I want you to know how much I am struggling for you and for those of Laodicea and for all those who have not met me personally. That is so cool. This is so cool. Paul is laboring and struggling for people he's never even met. Think about this. There are high school seniors graduating in a couple of weeks who are going to flood this campus in the fall. What would it look like for you and me to labor and struggle for people we haven't even met yet? What would it look like for you and me to labor and struggle over moving weekend? So that we can meet people for the first time and bring them to Jesus. We don't even know yet. If you want some examples to follow and how to do this in this room, look at your core leaders. Look at your core leaders. I mean, you don't have to stare at them very <laughs> <laughs> But think about this. Maybe you, you did not realize this. Potentially, if you're new to this community this year, you did not know that there would be people who would devote their school year to helping you meet Jesus, to helping you explore his claims, to walking with you in friendship on a regular basis. These are phenomenal people. I wonder when the last time you thanked them was. Later. <laughs> but they have labored and struggled for you before they even knew who you were. I got to join uh, the revolution this afternoon. Uh, every Friday at noon, people meet in the BU and go out and start conversations about Jesus. And if you can't come at noon, come at one. Can't come at noon or one, come on Thursday at noon. There's all kinds of people doing it all times of the day. There are students in this community who are living out what it looks like to struggle and labor for the God, labor for the gospel and for those who respond to it. Hallelujah. We're moving. Oh. Okay, back to Paul. Verse 2. <laughs> my purpose is that they, although the people I haven't met yet, my purpose is that they can be encouraged in heart and united in love so that everyone may have the full riches of complete understanding. Man, we could just camp on that for a long time. In order that everyone may know the mystery of God, namely Christ. Again, he's back to what, what you said before. The mystery of God, you know what the mystery of God is? Christ. Look at Jesus. Jesus will tell you about what the mysterious God is like. 
Someone who is appropriately overwhelmed, captured, taken by the message about Jesus Christ dying on the cross for the sins of everyone in the world will proceed to dedicate the rest of their lives to spreading that message and caring for those who believe it. That's what Paul says. You want to know what it looks like to mature in Christ? Give your life for the gospel. Give your life. Build your life around caring for that the message gets out and caring for those who respond to it. It doesn't mean you don't care in the process of giving the message out. It's care both directions. I want to tell you another story. In the early 1860s, a young Belgian Catholic priest, again, Facebook's great, um, felt the call of God on his life in response to the gospel, and he decided to become a missionary, a missionary priest, to the unreached people groups on the islands of Hawaii. Now we hear that and say, oh yeah, suffering for Jews in Hawaii. Sounds terrible. Oh, Jesus, oh, you just get the eyes all the time. No. In the 1860s, there were no resorts in Hawaii. And there was no email or airplanes. There was probably very little mail in general. This is a, an isolated island with a very enclosed uh, people group. And the Catholic Church said, they need to hear about Jesus. Who do we send? Father David said, I'll go. I'll go from Belgium to Hawaii. Halfway around the world. Isolated by miles and miles and miles of ocean. I'll go. So he was 24. That's just a couple of years older than some of you. And what do you see the younger than some of you? Younger than me. When he was just 24, he left his comfortable Belgian town and sailed for weeks to reach the Hawaiian Islands. Once he was there, he was assigned, he was assigned to a small community on the island of Oahu and served there for nine years. When Father David was 33, he was called into a council held by the Bishop of Hawaii. The Bishop explained to the council that there was a group of people who lived on the north shore of the island of Molokai. The community had just been started, and as of yet, they had not been reached with the gospel, nor did they have a priest to minister in their midst. Ordinarily, what would come next is the Bishop would assign a priest. Okay, so you are going to go to this new community on this island. However, contrary to the norm, the bishop refused to simply assign anyone to this new parish. At that time, the Hawaiian Islands were facing a growing health crisis. On a number of the islands, there had been a sudden outbreak of leprosy, and the government had taken drastic measures to stem the outbreak. In order to prevent the spread of this incurable and extremely infectious disease, the government had decided to ship all known lepers on the islands to one region on one island for the sake of the rest of the community. And so lepers were sent to the north shore of the island of Molokai. After much prayer, Father Damien approached the bishop, bishop personally and requested that he be sent to the leper colony to bring them the gospel and be their priest. The bishop explained that granting Damien's request was a death sentence. To which Damien replied, But who will address their misery with the compassion of Christ? On May 10, 1873, Father Damien hiked to the north shore of the island of Molokai and began 
his parish ministry. His first order of business was to build a chapel into which his parishioners could come in for worship out of the blazing sun on their open source. But his role is not limited to facilitating worship services. He dressed ulcers, built homes and beds, built coffins and dug graves. This was his life for 11 healthy years. Until one night, he was pouring boiling water for his evening bath, and some spilled on his feet. And he didn't feel it. And he knew that he had contracted the fatal disease. Father Damien died of leprosy on April 15, 1889, not yet 50 years old. He was buried on the island of Molokai because they couldn't transport his infected body off the island. Father Damien is our older brother in the faith. My question for us is when did Father Damien actually die? When did he actually stop living his own life with his own goals for his own comfort? And when did he give his life for the gospel? What I suggest to you is that Father Damien died a long time before his heart stopped beating. There were a long stream of small decisions that got bigger and bigger and bigger. That stopped being about his life, his comfort, and his future. And instead were about Jesus and his message. What about us? Have you given up your life for the sake of the gospel? If you have attached yourself to Jesus, or is this life that you live still yours? What drives you? What informs your decisions about your future, about the choices that you make day to day? Paul writes that anyone who is living for something other than Jesus is at risk. He says this, verse 4, I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. Our culture, the culture on this campus, will do everything it can to try to convince you that you are the most important thing in the world. That your own happiness is the highest good. It's not. Jesus is. And his message is our only hope for true happiness. And it's the only hope for everybody around us. This culture will try to feed us fine-sounding arguments about our own comfort, our own ease, how much money will make us happy, how important it is to make the most of our life. Now, you, you might not be ready tonight to move to a leper colony. Some of you might be. Some of you are like, yeah, I'm out of here. Let's go. Let's go die for this message. I've been so taken by this, I'm out of here. This life is not about me anymore. Let's talk. So you don't look crazy. <laughs> but we might send you somewhere where you will die. And we'll say, go with our blessing. You have joined the ranks of those who no longer live for themselves. Whether or not you stop breathing, it's still not your life. The life you live 
We live by faith in the Son of God. And there is no saint who has given their life to Jesus who regretted that decision. There is no saint who said, Ah, I didn't get a good deal. For those of you who give your life to Jesus, you will discover that Jesus has, has the, deal is, the deal is ours. But I wasn't ready to, leave a lepre- to go to a leper colony without a Christian. Yeah, right. You're crazy? I don't even know how to play video games. I go to a leper colony. <laughs> but here's the thing. How can you play video games? It starts now. Being the kind of person who no longer lives for yourself starts now in little, small, meaningful decisions. Live decisions that says, you know what? This is not about me anymore. It's about Jesus. Who do you sit with at lunch? Are you more interested in being comfortable with people you know at lunch, or do you hope that other people hear about Jesus at lunch? Maybe even other people from other countries. Some of you need to go be missionaries in Jordan or Sri Lanka. But how will you be able to do that if you can't even go to core consistently? It starts now. Little decisions, doable, measurable decisions. And say, this is the kind of person I'm going to be. It's not about me anymore. Here's one. Would you be willing to sit with a new person on Friday night instead of with your core so they feel welcome? (gasps) What? (laughs) Listen, if we can't do hospitality in our own house, where else can we do it? How much time will you spend trying to make new friends so those new friends can meet Jesus compared to how much time you put you spend playing video games all by yourself. Here's a crazy one. Are you willing to spend more money on another year of school if that's what it takes for you to become proficient for life at communicating your faith and passing it on to others? No. That's too far, Jeff. My money is mine? We are a movement, not a club. But the temptation will always be to let other people get the work done. Tonight Jesus says, I want you to go to work. Even if you're the only one. If no one else around you responds, I want you to respond. I want you to build your life on me. I want myself, Jesus, the supreme being in all the universe. I want to be everything you build your life around. And when you do that, you will discover life, as Paul calls it, the life that is really life. And you know what? I think you can actually do it. I think you can. I know you can. I see it happening. So does Jesus. And so did Paul with the Colossians. Look at verse 5. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit, and I delight to see how orderly you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. He ends his challenge with an affirmation. I believe in you. I think you can pull this off. For one thing, I know whose energy is so powerful and working in you. For another thing, you guys are great. He believes in the church in Colossae. He knows what they're capable of. And I think he would say the same thing to us. He knows what you and I are capable of. He would be over the moon if you heard about the revolution on Facebook. 
Assuming follow beyond Facebook. I don't know. <laughs> Just think of what could happen if every single person in this room was willing to lose their lives for the sake of the gospel. It won't mean you die tomorrow. The odds are very low. But that's what it will cost you. Immediately. But what if we all started living as if our lives didn't matter to us anymore and what mattered most was people hearing about Jesus? Amen. Being a servant of Jesus means orienting your life around getting this amazing message out and caring for the people who respond by believing. I think it would be helpful to, to have some time of quiet to make some decisions. Some questions for you to sit in a couple minutes of just quiet journaling reflection. Who's in charge of your life? Is it about you? Or do you think it's about Jesus and his priorities? What does it mean for you to say yes to giving your life for the gospel? And you can think in particulars, you can think in generalities. You can say, oh, but God, I don't, this is hard for me because... Just engage, interact with Jesus on those kinds of questions. 